1: Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and we're so woke that our mascara is vegan. Ladies and gentlemen,
2: the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend.
1: Today we are still sipping on a delicious beer from the good folks over at Oscar Blues Brewing Company. This is called Mama's Little Yellow Pills. It's a bohemian style pilsner. It's a damn good crushable beer. Take two of these and don't call me in the morning. Garage grade three and three quarter bottle caps out of five. And we'd like to give some praise and thank you to some of our friends that helped us out with this week's beer fund. First up, a big cheers to Melissa McBrayer. In Lexington, Kentucky, one of the best moms out there.
2: And a big we like your jib to carry in Anchorage, Alaska. Here's a double cheers to Allison and Meredith from Nefarious, New York. And a big Irish cheers to Nicola in Ireland. Here we go, Captain.
1: We have a cheers to Kate in North Huntington, PA. She says she wants a TCG license plate holder, which we do not have any of those. So Kate, will look into that for you. And last but certainly not least, we have... Philip G. of the Republic of Cyprus, everyone that we just mentioned, well, they went to truecrimegarage.com and they clicked on that donate button, which helped us out with this week's beer run.
2: Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N. Beer run. For more True Crime Garage for your ear balls, check out our bonus show called Off the Record, and that's on Stitcher Premium. And for all of our old episodes, you can find them everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SiriusXM, Stitcher app, everywhere you listen to podcasts. And that is enough of the freaking business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab
1: a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Shortly after the Tylenol murders, Chicago columnist Bob Green wrote the following article, which appeared in multiple newspapers in and around the area, as well as across the country. The article was titled Message to the Tylenol Killer. If you are the Tylenol Killer, some of this may matter to you, or it may make no difference at all. If you are the Tylenol Killer, your whole murderous exercise may have seemed beautiful in the flawlessness of its execution. You doctored the capsules, and the people died, and you put fear in the hearts all over the nation. If you are the killer, the success of your mission may be sustaining you. If you are the Tylenol killer, though you may be harboring just the vaguest curiosity about the people on the other end of your plan, the people who were unfortunate enough to purchase the bottles you had touched. If you are curious, come to a small house on a quiet winding street in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. The people who live there, Dennis and Gina Kellerman, feel you have already been inside anyway. Maybe the names don't mean anything to you. You killed their daughter. She was 12. Her name was Mary Kellerman. And her crime was that she had a cold. You might be interested in hearing what you have done to her parents. They are still numb, alone in the house. Gina Kellerman blames herself. You see, she came home from work on the day before her daughter died. And on the way, she stopped to pick up some medicine. Mary Kellerman was a child who didn't like to take medication. She would go yuck when her mother offered her cough syrup. So on that afternoon, Mrs. Kellerman purchased a new bottle of cough syrup with a flavor that Mary might like a little better. And she picked up a bottle of Tylenol. At first, she was going to buy a small bottle. Then because she suffers from arthritis and she thought that she might need a pill soon. She changed her mind and bought the next bigger size. She bought your bottle. You ought to see her now, crying, her eyes vacant, as she sits in the family room and talks about what her life might be like, only if she had stuck with the first bottle that afternoon. You might be interested in Mary's father, too. He woke up the next morning and went into Mary's room. She told him that her throat was sore. He said he wanted her to stay home from school for the day. He remembers exactly. Quote, I heard her go into the bathroom. I heard the door close. Then I heard something drop. I went to the bathroom door. I called, Mary, are you okay? There was no answer. I called again, Mary, are you okay? There was still no answer. So I opened the bathroom door, and my little girl was on the floor, unconscious. She was still in her pajamas. You might be interested in knowing that Mary's mother and father, when they returned from the hospital, returned without Mary, who, as you know, was dead. They looked in the refrigerator. In the refrigerator was a brown paper sack with a sandwich and a piece of pie inside. Mary had packed her lunch the night before. She thought she would be going to school, so she made herself the sandwich. She could not have known about you. On the front of that refrigerator are a number of funny, furry little animals with magnets fastened to their backs. They are used to attach notes to the refrigerator door. Maybe you would care. Mary made those for her mother. They were gifts. If you are wondering whether Mary's parents talk about you, you don't have to wonder anymore. They do. You have never been in their house, and yet they cannot walk into a room without feeling you are there. You don't know them, but you have changed their lives forever. They feel as if they can't get away from you. Although they realize that they make no difference to you, they find themselves caught in an awful game of making trade-offs in their mind. If you had only wanted to steal their car, they think, If you only had wanted to burn down their house, anything, they would have said yes to anything, anything, but this. Do you want to know what they are thinking about you? Quote, I would pay anything if whoever did this would walk up to my front door right now. That's what Mary's father said. I would give everything I own because once he walks through that door, he's mine. As it is, you should know. Mary's parents are too shattered even to visit the cemetery. Mary is buried at St. Michael the Archangel in nearby Palatine, Illinois. And they wish they could go to her grave, but they can't. The hurt is too deep, and you are keeping them even from that. If you are the Tylenol killer, you should know one more thing. Mary's mother can't have any more children. Mary was her only baby. You might be interested in knowing that Mary was born one month premature. And then as she entered the world, her mother was scared because she was not crying. But the doctor smiled and said, it's okay. She's only sleeping. And she was, she was a quiet child. And because the Kellermans knew she would be their only child, She was especially precious to them. You should know that Mary's mother has not gone into Mary's bedroom since her daughter died. Her clothes are still there and her school books and papers. The door is closed. Mary's mother and father have to walk past it every time they go upstairs. Mary's father has gone inside but just once. He went in to pick out the clothes for Mary to wear at her funeral. If you are the Tylenol killer, you might want to know that Mary's parents always considered themselves to be overly protective. Mary always had to be home by dark. Even when she was out with friends, she had to call home frequently just to say she was all right. The reason Mary's parents were like that was that they knew something that a 12 year old girl could not know. They knew that the world at times can be a cruel place and that parents have a duty to protect their child from dangers the child might not even know are there. They thought they knew about every danger that could possibly touch Mary, but they did not know about you. In one of his books, FBI agent John Douglas discusses the painstaking investigation that occurred in the weeks following the murders. Task force members interviewed employees from each affected store. They went door to door with police sketches of persons seen near the stores. They tried to lift fingerprints from the contaminated bottles that were found still on the store shelves. Only a single smudge was lifted from one of the bottles. They scrutinized security camera video, such as it was in 1982. Police were able to uncover one photo that bore scrutiny. An ATM machine automated camera had taken a still shot of a store checkout counter line at exactly the moment that Paula Prince was paying for her Tylenol. This grainy photo was eventually publicly released by the Chicago Police Department. In the photo... Several people are visible standing in line, including one bearded, tall man standing maybe 10 feet behind Paula and staring directly at her. Police have said that they believe that this man
2: might be the poisoner. It's very possible, but like we said in the last episode, the time frame of when this individual could have tampered with the Tylenol pills and returned them to the stores is days
1: i'm not exactly sure captain what makes police say that this you know that crafted their statement to be that we believe this guy could be the poisoner seen in this atm camera security camera footage
2: It's clear they're they're biased against people with beards
1: probably um but yet they didn't pick out the two lane guy with his beard So we have one, two, three, four, five, six people in the photo that I can see. One of them is our would be victim. And again, potentially the man in the very back of this photo, he could in fact be the poisoner. Then in another possibly helpful piece of evidence, we have one witness who comes forward who may have some significant information. This was an elderly woman who told police that she saw a man in a drugstore take something out of his jacket pocket and place it on the drugstore shelf. She, at the time, assumed that he was possibly a shoplifter who had returned an item and second-guessed himself. Right. If she was correct in her recall, it meant that the theories about the murderer operating at the retail level were spot on.
2: Well, and also, there's been plenty of times I've been shopping and I throw something in my pocket, not thinking about it. Oh, crap. I don't need to have that in my pocket. So it could be something as simple as that. But like you said, and I think we both agree on, it's more likely this individual took the pills somewhere else, tampered with them, and then brought them
1: back. As we mentioned, John Douglas was brought in to create a profile of the poisoner. He believed that the killer was one single man acting alone, poisoning Tylenol at the retail level. He described the Tylenol murders as a form of terrorism and the crime, one of psychological distance committed by a cowardly, non-confrontational person. He concluded that the murderer had not targeted a specific person or store, intending instead to generally terrorize and cause panic and mayhem. The killer, he believed, was a man driven by rage and anger, someone with a history of personal failures. This would be someone who had many instances in their life where he believed he'd suffered injustices and unfair treatment. He may have a military background, would have trouble keeping a job, and likely had a psychiatric record. He would have had periods of depression and hopelessness. And he was probably set off by some stressful event immediately prior to the late September murders. Of course, without a crime scene or targeted victim, it would prove very difficult to apprehend the killer. Douglas says in his book, quote, we don't know if the subject was getting back at the manufacturer, the stores that distributed the drugs, the victims themselves or society in general. The killer could have no connection to Tylenol at all selecting it simply because it was so popular. And cyanide, of the type used, was readily available and cheap. John Douglas wasn't the only one to suspect that the killer was an outlier. Time Magazine said that psychologists called the killer so strange that their normal guidelines just don't work. And a Chicago area investigators stated publicly that they were looking for a madman.
2: Well, their investigation is going to be very difficult, too, because during the whole time they're trying to find whoever did this, you have to be worried that that same individual is going to do this to another product. And at the same time, this is happening just within the next 30 days of the initial investigation. They had over 270 copycats.
1: Yeah, and we'll dive into that in a minute. But I wanted to point out here, Captain, that in the traditional John Douglas style of investigating and potentially apprehending a suspect, he is going to push these agencies to put forward some precautionary methods for drawing the killer out to challenge the killer to come forward in some form or fashion to present himself to law enforcement. And he had several different tactics, which he suggested that they use at the time of the Tylenol murders. One being that the local stores had beefed up security and nobody could tamper with any of the products that they were selling. there. almost challenging the killer to either want to look and view the space for themselves or to test them to see if they would tamper with a product and try to put it on one of the shelves there. He also had several different methods and tactics, but one that was very interesting is the article that we read at the top of today's story. If you read between the lines, there are some very interesting pieces of information that were included in that article.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Come, come visit our house.
1: Correct. They do not give the address of the Kellermans, but they give a very good description of where one might find the Kellermans home. Mm Mm-hmm. Second, they give a very good description of where little Mary Kellerman's body was buried, what cemetery she was buried in. Douglas and the FBI decided what they were going to do was to pair up, team up with a local columnist. And Douglas wanted a columnist because he wanted someone that the community was already familiar with, that the community already trusted and had some type of relationship with. Now, he said he did not want to tell this person, the journalist columnist, how to write the article. So he simply sat down with Bob Green, who Bob Green came forward and said, I would love to write the article. He says, we just simply told them what our strategy would be and let him, as the writer, construct his own column.
2: When John Douglas comes into town, all law enforcement should cheer. Because you're going to get hours and hours of overtime duty <laughs> sitting in front of somebody's house, waiting for somebody to come back, or at a grave site. I can't remember what the actual number was, but I think they had surveillance on her gravesite for like 24-7 for weeks.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it was, in fact, weeks. I, I don't have the exact timeline, but... I do know that when the article came out, they were already prepped to do 24-hour surveillance on both Mary Kellerman's home and the gravesite.
2: Yeah, cha-ching. Here's my issue, though, too, with this crime, is this does not have to be a local individual. We have this time frame where somebody could have came into the city, took the items, went, went to a hotel, went down the street, tampered with them return all the items, and then head out of town.
1: Yes, that's correct. That is certainly a possibility here in this case.
2: And the reason why I bring that up is don't you think that law enforcement and John Douglas were kind of assuming that this individual is more local?
1: Well, I mean, we have it in the profile that we just gave where he he says that he believes that the tampering took place at the retail level. And so what that means is— no one can say for certain if, this, if the perpetrator is in fact local or not. If they had a way of determining that, we probably would have a solved case. We wouldn't be sitting here 30 years later.
2: Right, but what you're saying is that the retail stores, they're technically local level. So the person would have had to get the, those items locally.
1: We know they were local at one point. In the commission of these crimes. It's just like what we spoke about when we talked about the the Zodiac killer. We don't know who he is. There's been all these suspects over the years. But one thing we can say for certain is that those three letters were all mailed on the same day from San Francisco. So we don't know where he lives, where he works, who he is. But we know on that day. On that one particular day, the Zodiac killer had to be in the city of San Francisco. Same situation here, Captain, as you're pointing out. If you're targeting this and commissioning these crimes at the retail level, that means at some point you were local. You had to physically be there to place these items on the shelf. So therefore, you go, all right, if the perpetrator was local on that day, whatever the time frame is. He may still be here or he may be local permanent. So we're going to run these uh, these tactics and try to draw him out. Now, there's an interesting story that comes from this is that after a couple of nights they're you know, they're surveilling Mary Kellerman's home and her gravesite, hoping that the killer may want to catch a glimpse of the home or visit the gravesite, maybe even show some type of remorse and go to the gravesite.
2: Yeah, I don't know if you reported on this yet, but uh, they also publicized all the victims' funerals as a, as a way to say, "Hey, maybe he'll show up to one of the funerals."
1: Yeah, Douglas also suggested. I mean, like I said, there were there were probably six or seven different methods that he suggested that they they do at the time. One would be to have candlelight vigils and to take down the names and license plates of the people attending. Right. He also suggested, you know, as you said, publicly announcing the. The funerals, which is which is very typical of any type of crime. It's you know, often the funerals are publicly announced anyway, regardless of how someone dies. Um mm-hmm. uh, so it's not it's not out of bounds by any means at all. But one thing that he suggested was putting like special markers, decorative markers on the graves themselves. And maybe this guy might want to go and take one as some type of souvenir.
2: Right, or tamper with them and on some level.
1: So something physical that you might be able to catch this person with in their possession at some point in time.
2: And and I keep saying he, I, I think you're saying he as well. I, I think we, we believe, but also law enforcement believes that this was done by a male.
1: Yes, um, that seems to be the general consensus and it certainly seems to be john douglas's thoughts i know that typically females are poisoners but typically females kill people that they know it's right it's very rare it's much more rare that a female would kill strangers compared to a male killing strangers so one story that comes out of this this tactic of surveilling the home and the gravesite is that after a few nights of this, these stakeouts in the boneyard at the, the cemetery, a guy approaches the gravesite in the middle of the night. Mm. So police move in because they want to hear what this guy's going to say. Does and he
2: smell like bitter almonds?
1: He says something to the effect of, you know, he's apologizing, saying, um, I didn't mean to do this. Uh, the man's crying and apologizing. And said that it was an accident. I never meant to kill you. The problem then becomes that police hear the man say, Susan, I never meant to kill you, Susan.
2: Right.
1: We're not sure who Susan is, but it's quickly determined that
2: she's somewhere in that graveyard.
1: Susan's grave was right next to Mary Kellerman's grave. The man was going to her grave, to Susan's grave, to apologize to her because Susan was killed in a hit-and-run
2: oh.
1: situation. This was the man that was responsible for killing Susan.
2: So, hold on. Did, got him?
1: Yeah, got him. So, oh, what, what becomes of this is they never got Mary Kellerman's killer, but they did get this man who was involved in this hit-and-run accident with this Susan victim. And not only did they get this guy off the streets and solve that crime, but it also, in a way, proves Douglas's theory that this is actually a thing. Yeah. That it actually happens, and it's a way that they can be more proactive rather than just sitting on their hands waiting for the killer to either strike again or or show himself in some manner.
2: Yeah, but if, if you're a fan of Mindhunter and you believe somewhat the storytelling in Mindhunter, then John Douglas was the guy that people would talk shit to and so at some point somebody's going we're paying all these cops all these extra money and nothing's turned up and this is john Douglas's way of saying how well one my theory is correct but two we got a bad guy off the street because we had law enforcement there at the grave sites
1: in early 1983 the cook county medical examiner announced that they had re-examined 17 unexplained deaths that occurred around the time of the Tylenol murders and that three of them appeared to have resulted from cyanide. In all three cases lethal doses of cyanide as well as acetaminophen were found in their blood but it was too late to discern whether these people were definitive victims of the Tylenol murder. Any extra-strength Tylenol in their homes had long since disappeared. while your subscription is active.
2: All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. Cheers. Crazy to think the Chicago Tylenol murders, 1982, September 29th. Tylenol goes from 37% of the market share to 8% after the murders.
1: Surprising they got 8%. Yeah. Sadly, the tampering inspired hundreds of copycat incidents across the U.S. The FDA recorded more than 270 different incidents of product tampering in the months following the Tylenol deaths. Some of this was, for the most part...
2: No, 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 that's 270 within the first month
1: well we have we might have different information here the large part of this 270 number regardless of if it it was in a 30 day time period 45 days or 90 days is most of these are pretty small time acts these are not people trying to kill people or kill people on a mass level a lot of this is people trying to collect some kind of money from manufacturers or from stores Mm -hmm. for items that they can take something as simple as maybe spaghetti sauce and put some, you know, a dead bug in it, or, uh, they had found dead rats in some food products. They also found things like pills tainted with everything from rat poison to hydrochloric acid that actually did in fact get some people sick around the country. And as said, some copycats branched into food tampering. That Halloween, parents reported finding sharp pins concealed in candy corn and candy bars, and some communities banned trick-or-treat altogether.
2: I mean, this would be a very scary time because once, look, the, the initial thing, you go, okay, there's a madman out there, but like you said, 270 within the next couple months, now you're going, there's multiple mad people, and they're not just trying to poison Tylenol capsules. They're trying to tamper with other food products and, and medical products.
1: There is one portion of this case that is absolutely terrifying. The, quote, Tylenol murders expanded out of the state of Illinois to take on a new shape in the state of Washington around the greater Seattle area. And this case starts on Wednesday, June 11. 1986, when 40-year-old Susan Snow got up early, you know, just like she would any other workday, both Susan and her husband Paul Webking, aged 45, were going to go about their normal workday routines. Susan was the assistant vice president of Puget Sound National Bank. Typically, Paul would leave for work before Susan, and that would be the same on this day as well. So Paul heads off to work. Susan is going to finish up getting ready and then leaves, leave the house as well. However, Susan's daughter, Haley, would soon find Susan unconscious on the bathroom floor. Haley called 911 and the paramedics were sent to the house. When the paramedics arrived on the scene, they found Susan still lying unconscious on the floor, but she was still alive. She was quickly transported to a Seattle hospital. Now, unfortunately, Susan was brain dead, and eventually she was taken off of life support and passed on. During her autopsy, the medical examiner detected that telltale bitter almond smell associated with cyanide poisoning. And sure enough, after further investigation, the examiner determined Susan had died of cyanide poisoning. Now, that morning, Susan and her husband, Paul, both took two extra strength Excedrin pills. This is your basic over-the-counter headache slash pain reliever. In fact, this is one of the major competitors for Tylenol at the time. Mm -hmm. And Susan and Paul, for whatever reason, preferred this brand. It was quickly determined that Susan took two pills full of cyanide. And the two extra strength Excedrin capsules that Paul took on that same day had no cyanide in them at all. Susan was dead about six or so hours later. Paul was lucky enough that the pills he took were not tampered with. Susan, of course, not so lucky. Now, after a public campaign, two more tainted bottles were found on store shelves. This is the whole Tylenol murder Chicago experience 2.0. Taking place now in Seattle.
2: I wonder if that's why they're sleepless.
1: Then on June seventeenth, forty two year old Stella Nickel called Seattle PD to report that her husband, Bruce, who had died suddenly two weeks before on June fifth, nineteen eighty six, that she believed that he had taken Excedrin, two extra strength Excedrin tablets, shortly before he died. Now At the time, the King County Medical Examiner listed Bruce's cause of death as pulmonary emphysema. Now armed with this new information, it's starting to look like his death wasn't natural, but it was a murder. The bottle that Bruce took his pills from was from the same lot number as the pills ingested by Susan Snow. Mm -hmm. By now, of course, Bruce has been buried for some time, but the hospital still had some of Bruce's blood, because he was an organ donor. And sure enough, there was cyanide in the sample. It looked like Bruce was another unlucky victim of product tampering. And this time, it's not going on in Chicago, but 2,000 miles away and four years later in the greater Seattle area. Now, the super strange thing here is the authorities were able to figure out that there were a total of five bottles that contained cyanide. Somehow, of these five bottles... Two of them managed to end up at Bruce and Stella Nichols' household.
2: What a coinky dink.
1: So of the five adulterated bottles of extra strength, etc., authorities found in Seattle, two came from the Stella's from Stella's home.
2: And we think there was eight now look, Johnson Johnson didn't test all of them, but we believe there was eight bottles of the Tylenol, so five here that they know of, but possibly another few that they didn't catch.
1: So The lab test on her two bottles showed traces of fish tank algae cleaner in the doctored pills. The traces matched the fish tank cleaner in Stella's home. Stella had poisoned her husband and planted additional tainted bottles around town, killing Susan Snow in the process so she could hide her crime and collect insurance to open up a fish store of her own. Remember, that was one of the suspected possible theories in the Chicago case. Right. Is that somebody would want to kill someone they knew directly, but cause other deaths to camouflage the murder. Well, this is
2: definitely a high level, high sophistication level of crime. It
1: could be looked at as such, but I think in the Chicago case, and again here in the Stella Nickel case, it might seem that way on the surface, but it's actually not Very difficult to do at all, Uh, especially in the Chicago case when there was no real tampering proof seals on those actual bottles. If the cyanide is readily available and someone just needs a general knowledge of cyanide, then all they need to do is take the bottle open, pull the capsule apart with their fingers and refill it with cyanide. The problem for the perpetrator of this crime, and this is something that you will see often with bomb makers as well. Is it with poisoning and with bomb making? There's the same risk involved for the perpetrator that you end up harming or killing yourself in the process of creating these devices to kill others. Cyanide is not only lethal as ingested, but can also be lethal um, to the touch. And I don't want to go too far into that because I don't have a complete understanding of it, and I don't want to try to pretend that I do. But from the information provided to me, it seems like it's. Risky behavior to even be handling right this type of uh, poison.
2: We'll get used to it because I just ordered a bunch of it off of Amazon.
1: But what's interesting here in this case, Captain, the Stella Nickel case, is that, I mean, she's actually a really terrible murderer. Because one, her horrific crimes, I mean, this is not just a situation of wife kills husband, but wife kills husband and is willing to kill at least one, if not several other people in an attempt to cover up and get away with the murder of her husband. So completely willing to kill total strangers just to get away with this crime, but two, killing her husband to get money. So this murder plot was fueled by greed. Stella took out two life insurance policies on her husband And Stella was such a slave to her greed that she would have got away with this murder, but she couldn't get out of her own way. So check this. She had two insurance policies that she took out on her husband, Bruce, unbeknownst to Bruce. Fishy. She purchased two $20,000 policies that she was the sole beneficiary on. Then Bruce had life insurance through his work for $31,000. Okay, so with these two forged signature policies of $20,000, we're at forty grand. Now add the 31000 from his work policy. Stella stands to make $71,000 from Bruce's death. So if Stella would have been okay with $71,000, mm-hmm. she would have never been caught. The medical examiner ruled the death a natural death. Nobody was any the wiser until Susan Snow died later from ingesting the extra-strength Excedrin. And then Stella Nickel informs the police, Hey, my husband Bruce, who died of natural causes weeks ago, he took Excedrin right before his death as well. Now, that is because... Bruce's work policy paid out $105,000 more if Bruce's death was accidental opposed to natural. And this is a big and. What was going on in the spring of 1986? It was national news at the time. Big news, as I like to say. The families of the seven dead Chicago Tylenol victims were suing McNeil Consumer Products Incorporated, a division of Johnson & Johnson. Eventually, they would settle with these families for millions and millions of dollars. Stella not only wanted accidental death benefit of Bruce's work plan, but she wanted to be able to sue a big brand, a household name for millions.
2: Right. Disagreed.
1: So for that, Bruce couldn't be the only one to die from product tampering slash poisoning. So in a way, she outed herself. Mm Mm-hmm. Instead of becoming a widow with an extra $71,000, she ended up arrested and convicted, receiving two ninety-nine 99-year terms under the new federal tampering law. Stella Nichol was the first person in U.S. history to be convicted of murder through product tampering. From my understanding, Captain, that is a federal offense. That's a federal crime, and she was convicted on the federal level of product tampering that resulted in murder. So technically... The state of Washington could still charge and then convict her with murder at a later date. She's still alive. She's living in some low security prison, uh, in, oh, well, yeah, when state. she
2: got sentenced and the, and the judge said two 90, 90 year sentences, she said, mm-hmm. she said, so you're saying there's a chance. Right. I might. I I still could get out
1: now. During the first four days of the investigation in the Tylenol case back in Chicago in '82, the task force interviewed over 1,000 people and amassed thousands of pages of documentation and created a suspect list of 24 names. By week out, this list was down to four individuals. One was a loading dock worker at Jewel, a massive company operating warehouses, distribution center, and packaging plant in the Chicago area, this man, this suspect, 48-year-old Roger Arnold, was known to possess and use cyanide and rant about killing people with cyanide capsules. He was also known to carry illegal weapons and, during the course of this investigation, refused a lie detector test. The other strange thing here, too, Captain, is it looks like Roger Arnold actually may have known or through a separation of a few degrees known one of the victims in the Tylenol case.
2: Seven degrees of Kevin Bacon?
1: He worked with the father of Lynn Reiner, right. one of the victims, and her father's name was Howard Fearon. And. Apparently, this Arnold guy was in possession of two recently purchased one-way tickets to Thailand when he was arrested in early October. What they did was, he's a suspect in this case, he was also a suspect in a June 1982 assault. So we're going to arrest him on charges of assault from that incident in June, Mm -hmm. hold him and investigate him in this Tylenol case. This will allow us to search his home. In his home, they find weapons making manuals including a book about how to encapsul- encapsulate cyanide. For a time, authorities suspected that Arnold was in cahoots with Ferron in the Tylenol murders. They also suspected Reiner's husband Ed for a time, but both he and Farron passed polygraph tests. They were cooperating with the investigation. It's not really clear why Roger Arnold was eventually cleared, but he went on to shoot a man to death whom he suspected had turned his name into the police as a potential suspect in the Tylenol murders case. He was convicted and sentenced to prison in 1984 for 15 years for that murder And then he later died in the year of 2008. Again, according to the information I saw, it sounds like they cleared this Roger Arnold guy.
2: So they clear him of murder, and then he commits murder because somebody turned him in for the FBI to look at him.
1: That's how the story
2: goes. Criminals are pretty stupid.
1: Well, I think that you have to be of a certain type to even land on the list of potential suspects in the Tylenol murders. And you can see how his personality played out in the long term. Another suspect was a Chicago man who was mentally unstable and made threats against some of the stores where the tainted Tylenol was eventually found. Mm -hmm. This was Kevin Masterson. Masterson's ex-wife had settled a lawsuit against Jewel, Remember that Jewel Osco company, her employer for mistreatment in connection with a shoplifting case. And Kevin had ranted about getting even with some of the retailers who ended up selling Tylenol that killed people. So he's in this whole dispute with his wife's employer. He under this theory is seeking revenge to attack the store's Maybe even put them out of business because they end up selling this Tylenol that's killing people,
2: yeah, so it's not so it's not essentially an attack on the people per se or attack on Johnson and Johnson. These are both bystanders in the fact that you want to shut down the store,
1: correct. that would be the motive if, in fact he is the perpetrator, however. He, too, it looks like, was investigated quite thoroughly and then dismissed at some point as a viable suspect.
2: Well, again, what you said in Episode 1, they're not being investigated just by local detectives or local law enforcement. We have a lot of hands on deck at the time, over 30-some FBI agents helping with this investigation from the onset That's a lot back in 1982.
1: Yeah. And a task force of almost 200 law enforcement members looking in and investigating this case. There was Vernon Williams jr. Of New Jersey. He saw this as an opportunity to try to extort $100,000 from Johnson and Johnson by threatening to taint more pills. He was jailed for attempted extortion, but clearly had nothing to do with the murders, per law enforcement.
2: Yeah. And then, yeah, well, I thought this when I first heard about him. This seems to be a good one at the time because in eighty two is when we hit a very bad recession. So I thought, well, maybe somebody's you know, when your whole country's in crisis financially, you go, know, okay, well, maybe somebody would try to take advantage of the situation and and get money through through crime.
1: And then there was James William Lewis on October 6th, 1982 Johnson and Johnson received a handwritten all caps letter with a New York postmark that read Johnson and Johnson parent of McNeil laboratories. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, It is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I have spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing then wire $1 million to bank account number 8449597 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do.
2: This guy sounds like a madman. He sounds like a good suspect. I mean, you have... Motive, but also you have the guy coming out and he's confessing to the crime.
1: Yeah, so the FBI lifted fingerprints from this letter and then noted the metered postage with the identifying Pitney Bowes number and an old date.
2: Yeah, Pitney Bowes. That's a pre-sort. It's a machine that helps you put together mail.
1: The envelope was stamped April 15th, 1982. So well before any of these Tylenol murders. The meter was traced to a company called Lakeside Travel. The bank account referenced, which was no longer opened at that point, belonged to Frederick Miller McKay, heir to the Miller Brewing Company fortune. Although he owned Lakeside Travel, police quickly determined that McKay had not written the letter, and he gave authorities a list of disgruntled employees or associates of his business on that list were the names Robert and Nancy Richardson. Robert Richardson was an alias used by James William Lewis, Mm -hmm. who was wanted by police in another state, which we will get into in a minute. Investigators initially thought that the extortion letter sent to Johnson and Johnson by Robert Richardson was just a hoax to embarrass McKay. But after they did some digging into James Lewis's past, they discovered that he had been charged with murder and was suspected of business and tax fraud. So they began to put a little more stock into the possibility that the letter was really sent by the actual poisoner. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't find Lewis. Meanwhile, he continued his pattern of sending ranting letters all postmarked from New York City. Lewis sent the Chicago Tribune and the Kansas city star letters denying that he and his wife had committed the Tylenol murders in another letter. Lewis attacked police handling of the murder and had been charged with the Raymond West case. So he is telling these newspapers that he and his wife had nothing to do with the Tylenol murders and he's complaining that, that the police in the Raymond West murder case had bungled that whole investigation and that he was trying to get that case reopened for some time. Lewis began signing his real name at some point and even put his right thumbprint on one of the letters. The letters were written in strange, militaristic, vengeful language. Here's an excerpt from John Douglas that I found interesting. Quote, we are not armed unless one means in the anatomical paraplegic sense. We shall never carry weapons. Domestically, weapons are for two quite similar types of mentality. One, criminals and two, police. We are neither. Douglas noted that this personality seemed to mesh with what he had profiled, a cowardly type that would be saddled with inner rage and preferred indirect attacks. Lewis also sent some letters to President Ronald Reagan in October of 1982, threatening to murder him with a remote-control airplane and poison more people with cyanide-laced Tylenol if certain tax policies were not changed. This seems like a, a man that fancies himself a bit of a Robin Hood to try to change things for the good, or the good as he says it, but threatening violence if you don't give him his way.
2: Yes, Robin of Loxley. I'm going to cut your heart out with the spoon.
1: Before becoming a suspect in the Tylenol murders, Lewis owned and operated a Kansas City business tax service called Lewis and Lewis. This is where they befriended an elderly client whose name was Raymond West. We've already mentioned his name. This man completely disappeared in 1978. Raymond's body was found in an attic in his own home about three weeks after he disappeared. The body was found dismembered. He had been cut up, wrapped in sheets and trash bags, and somehow hoisted to the storage area using pulleys and rope. He was too badly decomposed to determine the cause of death, or even actually who he was at the time. Later, they determined that it was, in fact, Raymond West. Now, what leads them to this James Lewis guy? He's a client of Lewis's in Kansas City, and police found a check from West Bank account made out to James Lewis for $5,000 dated on the last day that Raymond West was seen alive. After Discovering this, they searched Lewis's car, which yielded additional evidence, including rope, trash bags, and more checks from Raymond West.
2: $5,000 back then was a lot of money.
1: It's like $10 million today. No. Now, that's not they I mean. charged him with the murder of Raymond West. However, this trial that was set for late 1979 – it was actually tossed out. It was dismissed by a judge who ruled that the arrest and the search of Lewis's home and vehicle were illegal. So Lewis is going to get lucky in this situation. Now, Lewis, once he's free and clear and doesn't have to worry about these murder charges, he goes back to work. What's interesting. And I find this to be interesting here. Captain is that he did a startup company, which he co-founded with an Indian pharmacist, to import industrial pill-making machines from India. Police continued to investigate Lewis for anything. They were so convinced that he did this murder that they wanted to catch him on anything that they could find. You know, tax fraud, falsifying credit card applications, swindling clients, anything that they could possibly find. And some of the things they suspected him of, too, were mail fraud. By the end of 1981... It sounds like local authorities in Kansas city had enough evidence to charge Mr. Lewis with something, but before they could, James Lewis decides he and his wife are going to go on the run. Where do they go? They went to Chicago. Hmm. So this guy has a history of potentially murdering people. He has a history of potential falsifying documents, tax fraud, mail fraud, swindling his clients out of money and possibly land deals. He's on the run from authorities in Kansas City who have warrants out for this guy. Now he's in Chicago. Oh, and he has experience in pill making.
2: Yeah, which, again, like you said, it puts him in the area. He definitely fits all the profiles. And a lot of people that look into this case or have looked into this case, this becomes their number one. Suspect,
1: and what's weird too is that let's say this guy was out for revenge. By all appearances, it looks like the revenge he was seeking might have been against this Fred McHey, the the very wealthy man that stands to inherit the Miller Brewing Company fortune. That is because remember you pointed out the Pitney Bowes envelope. The police were able to trace back to sometime in April of
2: 1982. I used to I used to work on a Pitney Bowes machine.
1: Yeah, we had them at uh, some of the places that I worked as well. Now, what happened here, Captain, is not only did they trace that to that date, but they also traced the account to that Lakeside Travel Company owned by that Fred McKay, who Lewis's wife had that big pay dispute with. Right. This McCahy fella supposedly owed her five hundred, maybe six hundred dollars. It was not that big amount of money. I expected it to be a large amount of money considering that seven people died in this Tylenol murders case. But those that envelope was stolen along with a stack of other envelopes from that travel company on the last day that his wife worked there. So maybe he used it as it was convenient that the envelope was already there, postage already paid, or was he trying to purposely give this to law enforcement and maybe get them to lead them back to this Fred McKay guy?
2: So basically this would be him framing Fred for the Tylenol murders.
1: Yes, or again, maybe just a way of covering his own tracks and sending them on a wild goose chase. Now remember, Douglas said that this person, the murderer, probably would have experienced some type of stressor, disruptive life event leading up to contaminating the bottles and then killing these innocent people. Well, James lost his job that he had in Chicago in August of 1982. This could be the stressor. But what we do know is that the the Jameses left Chicago on September 4th, 1982, using the names William and Karen Wagner. This is where you get into that really gray area, right, Captain Where Because there's a lot of people that believe that Lewis is the best suspect, that maybe he is, in fact, the actual poisoner. But we talked about the delicateness of the gelatin capsules in relationship to the cyanide that was placed inside of them. Right. Could one have contaminated all of these products, put them on the shelves back in early September, and then they're not purchased until late September and consumed then. It seems a little difficult to believe, but we know he's still still involved, very much involved and active in this case, even after the fact that he leaves. Maybe he thought, I can poison these people, leave, and throw some other people under the bus after the fact. And they'll never catch me because I'm not even in the area anymore. Maybe that's maybe, as you pointed out, the perpetrator's not local. So he couldn't have gone to Mary Kellerman's grave, could not have gone to her home. Or this guy was once local, was not local after people started dying.
2: I know he's a lot of people's top suspect or favorite suspect in this case. My problem with it is the type of criminal he is. The the Chicago Tylenol murders, or what do you call them, the timers? Yep, the timers. <laughs> That's a goofy sounding name, but uh, to me, it's it's an act of terrorists. It's so it's to create terror and fear into not just Chicago, but you're doing it in Chicago because it's one of the biggest cities. But you're maybe somehow connected to it. So, but it's going to, it's, it's about the overall fear of the nation basically or setting a bomb or setting this trap. And then once the things are, um, once the events start taking place, you're off in a distance watching it happen, mm-hmm. admiring your work. That to me is the way a terrorist would work. This guy just does not fit that profile to me. I think this, uh, again, I think this is less about money and more about and still stealing fear where I think a lot of his crimes were connected to money. Um, yeah. So I just think, um, uh, good suspect, but it wouldn't be my number one.
1: Well, and the thing about him as well. And the other thing that makes this case very difficult is you cannot, it's too hard to determine if this is supposed to be public terrorism or mass extortion. Because Lewis, yes, he tried to extort money from Johnson & Johnson, but so did some other guy in New Jersey who had nothing to do and was proven to have nothing to do with the case. So does that mean that Lewis didn't have anything to do with the case? Potentially. We can't say for certain. But what we don't have other than this situation is we don't have someone coming forward that we believe to be the actual poisoner saying, you know what? I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep killing people unless you pay me off. Right. So it might not even be extortion at all. It might be, as you said, just public terrorism. The other problem with that, though, then, too, becomes often terrorists have an agenda or they have something that they need to bring into the spotlight of how they've been wronged in some form. The problem is usually someone claims responsibility for these terrible acts. We don't have that either. Nobody coming forward saying, you know, we are this group and this is why we committed these acts against the people of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So there's nobody really coming forward, trying to gain from this or claiming responsibility. It just really falls under, what could be just a a really confusing crime.
2: Yeah. We don't have anybody coming forward and saying we're a small foreign faction.
1: Yeah. So what you do have with this Lewis character, he eventually is charged with extortion stemming from the Tylenol murders case. He ends up serving about 12 years in prison on the extortion charge. He was released in 1995, but he's one of these, he's one of these real pain in the ass types that while he's in prison, he's granting interviews and he's talking about, you know, I was not the Tylenol killer, but if I was, this is how I would do it. Right. This is how I would, uh, contaminate the capsules. This is how I would place them in the stores, you know, saying all the, all the stuff that make you go, okay, I cannot clear this man. I cannot get it out of my mind that he could be, In fact, the Tylenol killer. In January of 2010, both James William Lewis and his wife were asked by the FBI to submit DNA samples and fingerprints to the authorities. Lewis stated, quote, if the FBI plays it fair, I have nothing to worry about. Lewis continues to deny all responsibility for the Tylenol
2: killings. So are you saying that he submitted DNA?
1: I said he submitted DNA.
2: Yeah. So in 2009, the FBI came forward and said, hey, we're going to use all new technology to re-examine the evidence in the Chicago Tylenol murders case, asking then Lewis for DNA. And then a year later, they ask the famous Ted Kaczynski for his DNA. The Unabomber. The Unabomber. Now, he said he would give it to them, but he had one condition. He wanted, there was going to be an auction of his belongings and he wanted for the auction to stop and not be held. He wanted to keep his possessions saying that he did, if he did give them his DNA, that maybe his DNA would partially match and he would need his items from his cabin to prove that he never owned potassium cyanide.
1: As for the murders, they remain unsolved. The case remains open and the $100,000 reward still unclaimed. Quote, one of the most sensational murder cases this century has gone unsolved because the person who did it randomly killed seven people, said Dan Webb, the U.S. attorney during the investigation. He goes on to say, if you have no motive, if all you're doing is killing people for no reason whatsoever, then that is likely to be the most perfect murder because there won't be any ties back to you.
2: For everything true crime, check us out at truecrimegarage.com and make sure you sign up on the mailing list. We like to send out Promo codes for discounts in our merchandise store. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for this week?
1: We all need a little escape once in a while. So this week we are recommending a fictional novel by friend of the show, Christopher Ferris. His new book called The Fountain is out and available everywhere. Deep in the Ozarks holler lurks an ancient source of power called The Fountain. It drives men and women mad and leads them to do strange and terrible things. It is growing in strength. Only an invisible wall held in place by centuries of sacrificial magic protects an unwitting mountain community from a descent into bloodshed and madness. Check out The Fountain by Christopher Ferris. We will have that listed on our recommended page at truecrimegarage.com for you. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter.